namani ngarulugana yakanda inbarindi ngarupokana poki unangu yalaka tarkari yara tampendi ngarupurachi yaiche mena yainche yarta kokuma tampendi mani nina pudne gana yartana nina padni panima poki mukabando tola poro tekandi tenanya panda tapana tutokuma yainche gana yara yaiche yara today we are meeting on sacred gana land we pay respects to all the Ghana that were and all the Ghana that are. We pay respects to all of our elders, Earthside and beyond, and to all First Nations people. On behalf of the ancestors and Ghana people, we welcome you to our country and ask that as you travel these plains, you remember the people that walked here before you. The spirit still lives amongst the steel, the concrete, the roads and the lawns. Wherever you go, you stand on unceded Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. not-so-perfect broccolini, Murdoch boycotts fringe, yes to the voice, Albo's 2023 agenda, and good news about electric vehicle batteries. This is The Week on Wednesday Live. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday Live from Adelaide Fringe 2023. I am your co-host tonight and every night, Ben Davison. Almost forgot my own name. <laughs> That's just how hot it is here today in Adelaide, folks. I hope wherever you're listening, you're in as luxurious an air-conditioned place as we are here at the Yurt. I am joined by my co-host, my wife, your friend, best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, who is lovingly cradling our dog Germanicus on the stage with us, Van Batam. How are you, Van? Well, obviously, Ben, uh, we've tried to replicate the atmosphere of our shed as much as possible, currently being in a yurt in Adelaide in 40-degree heat, in lounge chairs holding the dog. I think, it. I mean, despite the fact that I'm not in my pyjamas, not through any lack of effort to be so on my part, um, the that this is really how the podcast comes together week by week and and now you're here. So it's it's sort of like having a delusional experience with friends. Yeah, it really, really is. And uh, a huge thank you to everyone who has come along in the heat to join us in the yurt. Those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, we genuinely cannot underline how, how hot it is. And the fact that it's really an act of public bravery to even be here today, each and every one of you would like to thank. Ben and I, of course, live on the land of the Wathaurong people in Victoria and it's a, a really good moment to acknowledge that this amazing continent Australia is made of so many different nations. For example, where we live, it is cold all the time and we are really not acclimatising particularly quickly given the fact that when we left Ballarat yesterday it was seven degrees. Yeah. But look, we're, we're settling in and we've got a couple of South Australian stories to get us started, Van, because we thought it would be a, a nice uh, why we're going to be doing the week on Wednesday live here at Adelaide Fringe each of the next four weeks. Uh, but some keen-eared listeners from the United Workers' Union sent us a story uh, about not-so-perfect broccolini. No, broccolini, friends, is the latest front in the ongoing industrial war. So we didn't know this until we spoke no. to the United Workers' Union today. Did you know broccolini is trademarked? 
Uh, there is no generic broccolini. It, it's a it's a river that flows to one source, and that is the Perfection Perfection Vegetable Company. Perfection Fresh. Perfection Fresh. So if you're going to eat broccolini, I just want you to know you are participating in a deeply capitalist act, and you can sit with yourselves around that one. But whether that is morally positive or morally neutral or negative depends on just what's going on in the supply chain. So the United Workers Union represent people in the agricultural sector and anybody who still believes that agriculture is about you know like earthy single family tilling the the salt of the earth type obviously has not seen the size of the greenhouse industrial complex particularly in this country and the united workers union represents like thousands of agricultural workers who sometimes work in absolutely oppressive conditions hence the need for a union to represent them Mm. and what's going on in the broccolini supply chain is one of the one of the companies that exist in that chain from Perfection Fresh to the supermarkets, Coles and Woolworths, that stock broccolini, is there's been some worker exploitation going on. Now, we're not at the point of a boycott yet, but the the union are asking people to ask publicly uh, how people feel about the idea that with broccolini could also come a side dish of worker exploitation because one of those intermediary companies is in court at the moment fighting two worker exploitation cases and it's not good. No, that's right. A company by the name of Visari is in court on two different cases. I mean, one case is unfortunate, two cases is the beginning of a pattern and we know that in agriculture there has been a lot of worker exploitation. The United Workers Union have done an amazing amount of work and it's interesting to note while we're in Adelaide that Perfection Fresh employs 800 people in a glasshouse just north of here uh, that supplies to Coles and Woolworths. So there'll be... Material on our social media channels, you can check that out, those videos. Uh, we'd encourage you to share those, tweet those, aim them at Coles and at Woolworths. Ultimately, Coles and Woolworths have a huge amount of power in these supply chains. And what the United Workers Union are doing, what we'd like to contribute to, and we hope all of you will be part of doing as well, is giving the workers a bit more power in the supply chain. And of course, whatever kind of work you do, there is a union for you, and you can join your union at www.australianunions.org.au slash wow. We have our own web uh, our own web link for referring union members because we just think the answer to basically everything we talk about on our show is union membership. It is. You don't need to put the www dot in. Don't do that. But yeah. I'm old. Yeah, but I'm so much older than you. It, but it doesn't I'm work. I'm 48 years old and I www where I please. It doesn't work. It won't work. Don't do it. But Australianunions.org.au. It will work. It won't it work. Totally works all right right, you can find out whether it works or not and what a wonderful way of exploring that web link for yourself (laughs) that's right um of course one of the other big stories that is an adelaide story but actually has a broader connotation i think for the way media operates around the world and of course here we are at fringe adelaide fringe is the biggest arts festival in australia adelaide would have to be in the top five biggest cities in australia of course it only has the ninth biggest newspaper in the country, which is a Murdoch paper, which I won't name because why should they get free advertising from anyone? Uh, But they have boycotted 
Adelaide Fringe. Normally they would send reviewers. They're not doing that this year as I understand it. So this is an incredible story and it does feed into something that's much bigger and much more international. And look how uncomfortable poor little Germanicus is the moment we start talking (laughs) about Rupert Murdoch. He really is an amazing dog. So what's happened this year is you are at the Adelaide Fringe. You are amongst the million tickets that are sold as part of the standard Adelaide Fringe season. So Adelaide Fringe sells around 30,000 tickets a day. We know what the positive economic effects of that are. Not only does it create opportunities for performers and uh, crews and uh, hospitality and all the businesses that go around them, but also brands this city and South Australia more broadly to a really powerful and important tourist market. One of the reasons why I love this city so much is my first experiences of it were as a participant in the Fringe and I have come back as a tourist, even when French is not on. I love it here. The only city I can say without any qualification, I've never had a bad time in. So, which is, I mean, saying something. I was here last week for it. Yeah, yeah. So the the issue with Fringe is that it's, I mean, it's, it is this massive economic powerhouse for this city and the state more broadly. And I'd like to put in, this into context that Fringe sells more tickets and shifts more units than the entire AFL season does, right, in one month. It in is South that, Australia. In South Australia. It's, it, it's that much of a big deal. But curiously, this year, 2023, the Murdoch paper in town, which I am going to name because it is the Adelaide Advertiser, has has withdrawn their coverage of the Fringe. So instead of doing what newspapers like the Scotsman do at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is mobilise a massive campaign that brands their newspaper and their website by sending out hordes of reviewers that cover literally everything and have this ongoing going dialogue between the newspapers, the dominant paper in town and the community and the performers and the tourists who are coming in, the ticket buyers and everybody else, that's not happening this year. And it is kind of extraordinary to consider that. The Adelaide Fringe is the largest arts festival in this country. There are 1,200 acts, including Ben and I, who are on the uh, on the schedule mm. this year, like program. It's an absolutely massive cultural undertaking. And the idea that the newspaper would decide to withdraw coverage is kind of extraordinary. Now, what we've heard is that it's not because uh, the Fringe itself is not advertising in the newspaper. Um, what is going Going around, what is being said is that the issue is that people who come to the fringe and participate in fringe activities aren't buying subscriptions to the newspaper, which is their new business model. And it's kind of amazing to think that you would expect an out-of-town crowd who are coming to spend tourist dollars or who are resident because they're performing, bringing international perspectives to the city, that you would subscribe for a year to a local publication for a city that you don't live in. One would think that maybe, I mean, and this is pretty crazy, you would adjust your business model in order to reap the potential of that market, maybe with a short-term subscription or pay-per-view. Because the issue has been when reviews have appeared, the performers who are being reviewed haven't necessarily been able to get behind a paywall in order to see them. I do understand as a person who works in the media, the need for media corporations to make money. But as somebody from a theatrical background for whom this is, you know, my life and my work, I find it absolutely extraordinary to consider that you would think you are a newspaper when you are ignoring cultural conversations being instigated by 1,200 teams of creative professionals. And it speaks to a really 
strange and disconnected understanding of where conversations take place in society, who engages with the arts and what that conversation is about. Because I, do they genuinely think that we're part of some kind of marginal community? Because what is the population of Adelaide? It's a million people, is it not? Right, so a million people live in the city and a million tickets are sold. And, yes, there are, you know, obviously amongst us those who go on massive ticket binges and compete to see as many shows until their eyes pop out, yeah. and that is great, and I encourage that wholeheartedly. But at the same time, like, that's pretty representative of a population that's engaging with what's important and what our cultural conversations are. I think, Van, you've raised an interesting point here, right, because ultimately I think what the Adelaide advertiser is indicative of or symbolic of is a broader Murdoch approach to, well, to news. And and I say news in inverted commas because ultimately I don't think the Murdoch organisation is a news organisation. I think the Murdoch organisation is a, is a corporation that is trying to make money. And that's fine, and corporations do that. That's their purpose. But it has positioned itself over a long period of time as about being about news, when in fact it's really targeting a very narrow market segment of people who it thinks it can monetize. Now, anyone who's studied marketing or was involved in marketing will know about market segmentation. You identify groups of people around common interests or common behavioral traits where you can essentially target ads to them, products to them, whatever it might be. And what the Murdoch organisation has become over time, whether deliberately or just through evolutionary practice, is simply tailoring and catering to a market segment that it can sell to. And, you know, there's lots of good examples about how it's done this. And I want to use the one where I don't know if people remember that the Murdoch papers – just before the last election, said we're not climate deniers. Remember they were in a campaign? Yeah, there were front-page news, like climate change is real. It's like, yes, we have all been across this for some time. And they had jokes. Breaking news, everyone. Reality has finally dawned and we have washed ashore on the ship of the truth. And they locked Andrew Bolt in a cupboard for a week (laughs) and they just, you know. And really what that was, in my view, was that they were testing the market. There was a live market test to see if it was more profitable for them to target people who believe in the science of climate change or to stick with their approach of targeting people who feel really uncomfortable about that idea and really, you know, keep selling to them. Now, of course, we know that it's very hard to make that kind of shift, right? It obviously wasn't successful and Murdoch is back on the let's burn all the fossil fuels uh, as quickly as we can bandwagon. Uh, but it goes to that point, right, that ultimately they know their market is really quite narrow, quite, how do I say this? The, the market, Niche. Niche. It's niche. It's niche. It's really niche. It's got a niche set of beliefs. It's, got a, it's a pretty niche set of beliefs. It's got a niche set of beliefs about itself uh, and it spends money when it's afraid. Look, it is it is really interesting what's going on because obviously my interest over the past couple of years and I wrote you and on and on because I was fascinated with this notion that a really quite toxic and dangerous right-wing movement, a far right-wing movement, has used the internet to manipulate populations of people into mobilising around 
right-wing extremism mm. and it's happening in the West and there are communities of people that have mobilised very successfully uh, in the Republican Party in the United States, obviously in the Conservative Party in Britain and in various other what should be centre-right parties uh, around the West and in democracies that, are, uh, that these movements are aligned to something that is anti-democratic and authoritarian. And the reason why it's been successful is what people like Steve Bannon, who I talk about all the time, because I genuinely believed Steve Bannon is he is a genius. Like he is an organic genius of a far right movement. Can we say can we say he's a malevolent genius? He's a malevolent genius. An organic like, genius. No, he's he's quite brilliant, but he is he's an evil supervillain. Yeah, I mean evil supervillain, super I think is, I that's that. probably the appropriate the term. But he understands better than better than most people the the power of cultural movements. Like he has a saying that I talk about in my book, which is that politics flows downstream from culture. Mm. And if you if you make a cultural product, you are delivering a political outcome down that chain. And where the whole advertiser fringe thing sits in this sort of discussion is a decision has been made that we, as in the cosmopolitan performing arts community uh, who are showing work at Fringe, um, our infrastructure, our audiences, the people we speak to, that we are uh, the cultural other to a project which is anti-cosmopolitan, which is a project that is anti-diversity, anti-creativity, anti-performativity like and yet extremely performative at the same time. Yeah. And this idea that you would have a newspaper that would pretend that this conversation is not going on, that these creative minds are not present, that, you know, that we're not engaging around the issues of what makes a polis a polis, what makes a people a people, what is Australia, what is internationalism, all the kind of questions that implicitly come out every time that you engage a performance, you know, in the relationship of performer to audience. And it's really quite frightening because what's happening simultaneously in Murdoch land is there is a massive lawsuit going on in the United States at the moment involving the makers of Dominion voting mm. machines. Now, Dominion make the machines that American electoral authorities use to count votes and sometimes physically exit. It's a weird country. I don't know why. They just don't use pen pencils. And but, pen and paper. I, you know, so, you they, don't, they often only have one ballot box in a very big area. It's all very strange. I haven't really updated since the 1700s. And, you know, I think that was a mistake. However. On a Tuesday. It's on a Tuesday because of something to do with the harvest or wagons. Yeah, I don't even know. Yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> Bless them. It's, everybody speaks English and yet no one understands one another. And we can sit with that thought too. <laughs> but what's happening is so Dominion make voting machines and the big lie after the 2020 election that was pushed by the Trump campaign was that Trump won and uh, and Joe Biden lost and it only seemed that Joe Biden had won because of these evil voting machines. I mean this was a thing that was being said yeah. through the auspices of, of Murdoch organisations and Murdoch news organisations. Totally proven to be untrue. Absolutely we're not, untrue. We're not repeating the defamatory statement. We're saying that it was untrue. It, we're saying it was a big lie. Yeah. It was a very, very, very yeah. big lie. And, of course, there were all of these lawsuits that were brought by Trump-aligned attorneys mm. who were trying to question the results and throw up, you know, and so doubt essentially around the electoral outcome. 
And Dominion, because they are a billion-dollar company, are suing. They are suing everyone who made the accusations, platform the accusations that they were involved in any way in voter fraud mm. because obviously these kind of accusations will crash their company and, and wanna, destroy their business. They want to sell voting machines to other com- countries as well, right? Absolutely they want to sell because they're you know, that's how capitalism works. What's interesting, I mean, and we really can't underline – how off chops the anti-Dominion kind of propaganda was. They were accusing, Trump lawyers were accusing Dominion of machines of being controlled by the ghost of Hugo Chavez and who was the the former like left-wing leader of Venezuela who who was a communist who's been dead for some time. And it's like Ben and I in the strange circles we move in have met a lot of people with a lot of positive things to say about Chavez and no point did they mention that he could raise from the dead and control voting machines with his brain. I've got to say, I met a a Chavez minister and they said some – just amazing things. Man's physical capabilities were on a par with Putin. Yeah, and apparently unbelievably good at chess. Totally phenomenal chess player. Could not, however, control a voting machine post-death. No. And this was said, like on major network news in the United States of America. So obviously Dominion are suing, as, I mean, one would expect them to. What's happening in that lawsuit at the moment is they're going through the discovery process and Dominion are subpoenaing the records of all of these different, like uh, Fox News hosts and Tucker Carlson, Lauren Ingram, uh, Sean Hannity, all of these pro-Trump spruikers. And it's come out that these massive Fox identities who have audiences in the millions of people uh, absolutely knew that it was a big lie, absolutely knew that there was no way that Trump had won the election. They were communicating this in text messages to one another. So, Van, why then, if they knew this was a lie, if they, they, you know, were communicating with each other, they knew it was a lie, they were still platforming these uh, pro-Trump democracy deniers, they were slandering this company, why would they do that? Like, why would a news, in inverted commas, organisation do that? Well, the analysis coming out of the United States is that a lot of behaviour hinges on a particularly interesting episode during the 2020 election because the the Fox News commentators, the Sean Hannity's and Lauren Mm. Graham's, they all appear at night. They're like Sky News. They come out at night, crawl out of their holes, their eyes peel, you know, before the horizon and they look for new souls to take. But during the day they still pretend to be a news organisation. And, of course, it's an election. They had an election desk and Fox News having people on the ground in Arizona were observing the count and and had some access to some um po- some post poll exit polls exit polls yep and knew that there was a swing on in the state of Arizona. Arizona, traditionally a Republican voting red state, uh, looked as if it was falling behind Joe Biden. And the news people at Fox, live on TV, called Arizona for Biden and they were the first network to do so. History shows accurately as well. Yeah, accurately. So credit to Fox News, they were the first to call Arizona for Biden and they did so accurately. The problem was, of course, that was not what the Trump campaign wanted to hear. And the Trump campaign had been sowing this mythology, and you'd all remember it, about how Trump was saying, oh, yeah, the only way I could possibly lose the election is if the other side cheat, and there's going to be a red wave, and then they're going to lie, and then they're going to stuff the ballot boxes. And it was about building up a narrative expectation of what was going to take place, and it relied on having 
these cultural institutions mm. like Fox News back in the assumption of Trump and create this reality for people that Trump had won and had been denied. When Fox called Arizona for Biden, it went completely bananas. Like Trump was phoning Rupert Murdoch personally to complain. It, there was absolute fury in the Trump camp. They're all phoning Fox going, why did you call it? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? One of the other things that happened, it wasn't the pressure from the Trump campaign, it was actually the pressure from the audience. Like the audience of Fox News in the United States, like the audience of Sky After Dark here, the people who want to be there. Like this idea that is often really popular on the left that, oh, if only people, um, you know, could overthrow the brainwashing, if only people could like seek out like authentic and true publications. Like that's not why people watch Fox. People watch Fox to be told what they want to hear. These people subscribe and pay money to hear this nonsense. They do. They are the subscribers. They are literally the subscribers that the arts community travelling to a French show are not. And when that call was made, for Arizona, the audience went absolutely bananas and they were flooding the the phones at Fox and they were complaining on social media and they were saying, oh, we're going to turn to Newsmax, which is even nuttier than Fox News and um, One American News, which is even nuttier than Newsmax. And uh, researching this stuff, can I just say, I do it so you don't have to. Don't go there. Don't look. If somebody says there be monsters, there's a reason. There are monsters. Do not go. And it was that audience backlash that determined that you had all of these people who, despite the fact they were texting one another saying that Sidney Powell, Trump's lawyer, was nuts, it's in writing, Dominion, have the text messages, it is before the courts at the moment. It was that terror of the fact that this audience was turning on them and that they would lose their cultural control over that audience. That is the reason why they pursued the big lie. And I want to bring it back to Australia because, you know, (laughs) The, the American situation is going to be such a big focus for, I think, Western democracies in general. But we're seeing it play out not just here at Adelaide Fringe, but from the very start, well, end of last year, really, we, st- we saw the Murdoch organisation take a position on the constitutional referendum and uh, the statement from the heart to, to vote no and to push the no message, and they've done that consistently. Now, we're here in Adelaide. Uh, I know that tonight, uh, well, by the time you listen to this, you may have already gone to it. The Australian uh, uh, Unions for Yes campaign is having their online launch uh, tonight at 7.30. Uh, The Statement from the Heart is having their Yes campaign launch tomorrow, which we're very privileged to be able to attend. Which is taking place in Adelaide, which is amazing. Fantastic. But, of course, the Murdoch organisation has been pushing the no line really the whole time will continue to do so. There's no question about that. And when you start to put it into the context of how Murdoch has operated in the US, the cultural project, the audience segmentation and targeting, you start to understand why. And I think that's really important, right? Like everyone wants the referendum to be this great moment where we come together as a nation. And I get why the Prime Minister has to use that kind of rhetoric. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a yes camp and a no camp, and it's about winning the majority of votes in the majority of states in order to change the constitution. The Murdoch organisation doesn't really care about that so much as it cares about how much money it can make along the way. And I think what they've done is they've identified that their target audience, their market segment, is very much in the no camp, and the more they talk about no, 
the more ads they can sell to them, the more subscriptions they can sell to them, and ultimately the more money they're going to make. Well, I mean, I can tell you this as a person who works in the media. There are two things that make people responsive to advertising and it's anger and fear. And if you can make people angry and scared at the same time, you can sell them anything. And that's literally the business model. I mean, that's an, it's an old saying from television news, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. Because that's how you keep people tuning in and buying soap because it'll make them feel better. I mean, soap makes me feel better. I mean, I'm... I'm not going to lie. I do try and commit my intellect to more independent soap judgment, but I've obviously been sucked in somewhere along the line. But it, it is fascinating and where we're at as the, as a community and looking at these problems in the West, and they are problems in the West, like let us not, it, from the, the safety of beautiful, universally voting compulsorily enfranchised Australia where everybody's vote matters and there is not voter suppression and Ben and I talk about this a lot, like how important it is to defend compulsory voting because it means that we head off the kind of polarised lunacy that you get in the United States. If If democracy in the United States fails, we are all in trouble, like all the democratic states are. And you can see the impact in the war in Ukraine of what's been going on in the United States and this division and all the stuff around Trump prevaricating or providing aid to Ukraine and those really polarised narratives. You have Republicans standing up in Congress today campaigning against funding Ukraine an American ally to stop an authoritarian government invading and conquering its sovereignty. Like the idea that that's even going on should be terrifying for all of us. But where does the Murdoch Empire sit in that? Because it's not a news organisation. It is a cultural organisation in many ways, and this is the great irony of the review boycott by the advertiser at Fringe, is that they are a performing arts company. There is a script, there are actors, everybody involved, it's, it knows that it's not real. The audience knows it's not real but are going along with it because for the few precious hours they're watching it, they can convince themselves that it is. But that, of course, is leading on to things like the attack on the Capitol building on January 6th. And they now, by the way, as a cultural war reporter, their latest thing is they're campaigning against 15-minute cities. They're literally campaigning against the idea that cities should be walkable and more accessible and you should be able to get everywhere in 15 minutes. Apparently, everyone, hold on to your seats. It's a communist plot. (laughs) And this has become a talking point on these news organisations. Look, I think it's going to continue and I think it's in some ways only going to get worse. But what I'm heartened about the situation, if I can take some some, uh, hope out of the uh, discussion or put some hope into the discussion, is that increasingly people are aware of these problems and, and, and fighting back against them by not engaging with Murdoch Media. The, the numbers for the Adelaide Advertiser are down, quite frankly. I was amazed to see. I mean, it's the ninth highest selling. In the sixth, uh, in the fifth biggest city. In the fifth biggest city. And that's, I think that's pretty telling. Uh, and, of course, right across the board, Murdoch is starting to suffer uh, and what it also says is that politically he's weaker than perhaps he's ever been before. I mean, that used to be the big fear, right, that the Murdoch empire had this political control. And, Ben, I mean, I do want to talk about the Voice campaign and, and about Elbow's speech today at the press club because they both they both fit in this discussion, this narrative we're having about society where we're trying to have this conversation about um, recognition and consultation with the oldest continuous civilization on earth in this country. 
the Murdoch organizations are really just interested in selling subscriptions and ads, right? That's all they want to do. So they're going to do that. And, you know, 30% of people, 40% of people will possibly vote no, partly influenced by those conversations. But you've got Elbow out there talking about uh, our national security, right, which has always been a big talking point on Fox and Sky and on all the Murdoch tabloids. You know, they love pictures of nuclear submarines and they love pictures of people in uniforms. Foreigners are scary. Yeah, right? Buy this car. Buy this soap. Scary foreigners coming in boats. You know, Anzac Day. All kinds of boats. They're coming. They're going to get you. Anzac Day is is the one day they seem to remember that, you know, our veterans actually need support and help. But it's um, (laughs) – it is the – it is that conversation that says actually our national security is about more than submarines and boats. It's about the sense of who we are as a nation, right, and who we individually and as communities, how we feel, how secure we feel in who we are, in what we're about, in our futures. And and the thing that, I mean, I haven't seen much of the commentary about um, Prime Minister Albanese, or Albo's uh, press club speech, although I watched the speech, was that he tackled this, I thought, really cleverly. Everyone wants to talk about the nuclear submarines, and I'm sure a lot of the media commentary would be about the National Defence paper, but most of the speech was actually about things like job security, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Uh, it was about investments in childcare. It was about what they're going to do with fee-free TAFE. It was about how clearing out the visa backlog and having people here on a more permanent basis rather than a temporary basis was building a sense of security. This relief, repair, restraint mantra that he kept repeating, relief, repair, restraint, relief, repair. we get it, Albert. But it wasn't about budget repair. It was about repairing a sense of our national capability, that we make things here, that we do things here. That And, I mean, you went to the cultural policy launch, right? Yeah, I did. And it was a really important moment because it shows that in Australia that the, the new government is getting it, is getting the importance of that cultural project. And this is related to what's going on with Fringe as well, like quite realistically, because the phenomenon of Australia is that we have this amazing historical narrative of what Australia is, which is entirely made up and was made up at the time, like the the Bush movies. And, I mean, I grew up in the 1980s where you couldn't make an Australian movie without a horse in it. It, Or, you know, if it was a big movie, it had lots of horses in it. You remember Snowy River. Yeah, and the thing is these guys who created the, you know, the Bushman mythos of Australia were urban you know, womanising, hunting, people like Henry Lawson, whose contact with the bush was going to the Blue Mountains on a bender with some friends and then coming back in, oh, the man from Ironbuck, that kind of stuff, yeah. Patterson. Um, and that they confected it, you know, this idea of, you know, this white Australian colonial masculinity that was always nonsense. We're a highly urbanised nation. Overwhelmingly we live in cities and Australians actually quite like what cities have to offer. And this was something that was really apparent. We've spoken about this before, 
during the federal election and the phenomenon of the Teals. Mm. But the Teals aren't a new force in Australian politics. Like the Teals have been there for 100 years. It's just they used to be in the Liberal Party because the Liberal Party used to represent those values of like the sort of urbane cosmopolitanism and you could be an economic conservative and not really like you or not hate unions but maybe not want trade union people to come to a like they're garden coming, party. They're not, yeah, they're not coming to tennis. We're not having they're not, tennis. You wouldn't have them at no, tennis, Ben. Come no, on. No. And I mean you and me at tennis, use the side can you imagine? Yeah, yes, yeah. We're not drinking the lemonade. So, no. I mean, this is the thing. But it did exist in this context that it, things like art were important and going to the theatre were important. You know, opera is massively funded in this country compared to every other art form mm. because rich people like it. You know, it's international and it's well, they big. They pretend to like it. No, they like it. Opera's good. And, I mean, it is. It's good. It's fun. Some opera's it's got good. Fine. Great curtains, amazing <laughs> stage mechanics, hydraulics, amazing frocks. Well, you know, the Australian the Opera, they employ wig makers. I mean, these are important jobs for specialist artisans and I am entirely pro. But that was very much part of that kind of identity was that, you know, and eating out and eating international cuisine. And, of course, over the years as Australia became became more prosperous and had an expanding middle class, these are things that, I mean, you and I refer to ourselves as cashed up bogans. We like participating yeah. in those things as well. We had some Afghan food for dinner we last did. night. We did. In Adelaide, it was in really Adelaide. fancy. It was awesome. It was really, really was good. Delicious. Yeah, I own the cookbook and everything. Pa- Pawana? Yeah, Pawana. Oh, Something yeah. in Torrensville, it's really good. Not, anyway. That, that was, we, we paid full price for our meal. That was not a uh, Yeah, that was not a, they didn't know. It's, yeah, we yeah. went in definitely as the invisible consumers and went out with many, many boxes of food, which I, I ate. Yeah. I definitely, anyway. But the thing is that that's actually a political identity. That cosmopolitanism mm. is a political identity and a valuable one because once people become part of that, once you, you generally don't stop at one fringe, you generally don't stop at one Mardi Gras, you generally Generally, don't stop at one Afghan restaurant. It becomes part of the way that you participate in society and identify yourself as a as an urbane, cosmopolitan uh, person of diverse and engaged experience. And of course, what happened with uh, politics in this country was that you had a movement of people traditionally represented by the Liberal Party, like I said, more economically mm. conservative, whose cosmopolitanism whose recognition of climate change, whose belief in the value of a multicultural community, whose refusal to be homophobic or transphobic, imagine, imagine, that an unwillingness to participate in dialogues of division and hatred and and monoculture, they left because what's become of the centre-right across the West is this very monocultural idea that culture can only be one thing and one identity rooted in these totally fictional white, male, masculinist, sort of post-colonial, land-dominating, car, petrol-burning things. Well, I mean, and that was... And I say that as a bogan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a car. It burns petrol. Uh, You know, one day we'll, you know, get a Tesla. I've test drive it. We're not getting a Tesla. Well, maybe not a Tesla. Maybe not a Tesla. We're not getting a Tesla. No, no. We're investigating other brand options. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, this this was what really came through in the press club speech is that the Australian identity is not that that Morrison Dutton uh, monocultural, uh, you know, you, you go to the fish and chip shop on a Friday night and you line up and that's what you do every Friday night uh, and, you know, you might get Chinese once a month 
and that's, you know, lemon chicken and sweet and sour pork and that's it, right? Like those days are gone. I'm not racist. I like dim sims. Yeah, right? Like those days are over. Um, and, and, and look, you know, I grew up in those days. Fine. Lots of people did. But we now have an opportunity to be so much more. And the vision, I guess, about bringing together the various strands, right? So, yes, there's a there's a piece of it that's about culture and, and the arts as part of that culture. There's a piece of it that's about education and training and providing opportunity. There's a piece of it that's about being forward-looking. What does the next generation of jobs look like? What are the next set of skills that we need to develop look like? There's a piece that says, actually, you know, women – are an important part of our society and their active participation in that society should be encouraged and facilitated because we're a better society when it is. Don't tell Jordan Peterson. He'll be very confused. He won't know what to say at parties. Yeah, well, you know. But Jordan Peterson, by the way, the Canadian intellectual, which I find hilarious having actually met the man, not one of the top five words I'd use to describe him. I gave this unbelievable interview the other day. I have to talk about it because sure. it's so funny, where he said he, he just can't talk to non-binary people because he just doesn't know what to do. He doesn't he doesn't know what to do, so he just won't talk to them because, you know, like if, he, if you're a woman or a man, like he sort of knows what to do. And I'm like, why are you treating men and women differently? Yeah. Like have you ever thought of just being polite or not a complete psychopath? And, of course, the answer is no, that's never occurred to Jordan Peterson. But it's kind of extraordinary, like – and, I mean, I have quite a diverse and engaged Twitter following and you could see people who've been through many generations of experience, like quite, you know, senior Australians going, has he thought of having any bloody matters? Which I just thought was <laughs> the perfect response to that particular, yeah. But it's true. It is the that it is about how we now tie together the various strands of policy, of culture that, that will facilitate a vision of Australia that is actually reflective of who we are, right? And I think the voice campaign is is part of that, absolutely going to be fundamental to that and is part of the reason I think it's so critical, quite aside from just the moral imperative and, and the justice of it, is that it, it does say something about us as a nation that we recognise that the oldest continuous civilization on earth is part of this Commonwealth. And if we can't do that, then we are going to struggle to go, okay, yes, childcare and early childhood education should be a fundamental universal right because it's good for the children, it's good for the parents, it facilitates a good society and a stronger culture and it says, it talks to who we want to be as a country, you know, that we do have a policy of, uh, full employment rather than the kind of high priests of neoliberalism insisting that we must have all these unemployed people in order for the Commonwealth Bank to continually increase its profit. I mean, these are fundamental. But strong banks, Ben. I mean, but that strong was, banks. You can, you I can, don't know if you guys heard this one, but this was the defence. So the Commonwealth Bank has posted a $5 billion profit at the same time wages are not keeping keeping pace with inflation. So today there were some numbers out saying that realistic from the ACTU, saying realistically Australians are facing a generationally rare real wages pay cut because employers aren't coughing up what they deserve. And this is this is the point, right? So 4.5% real wage cut uh, is the largest 
I think, in history in Australia. And fundamentally, after a decade of driving down wages, after a decade of, of demonising unions, of demonising communities that stand together and say, actually, we think there should be a bit more fairness in this situation, we don't think it's right that temporary migrant workers are exploited in the gig economy or in our, in our agricultural system. We don't think it's right that workers are exploited full stop. We now have a situation where, you know, high priest Lowe sits there with his economic model that says, well, unemployment is low and wages will go up and inflation will go up. But unemployment is low and inflation is going up, but wages haven't been going up as much. Well, what I'll say to people is, don't ask for a pay rise. It's a constant reinforcement of a broken economic model. And I just keep coming back to the the tension now, I think, for Albo and the Commonwealth government is that they're there saying we want to we want to change the way we think of ourselves as a nation. We want to change the way our economy operates so that people are not pitted against each other. But the fundamental levers, some of these fundamental levers are actually still based on fallacy. I mean, if after 40 years of this theory being put into practice, we, we have a situation where people have, in real terms, the largest ever cut to their living standards at the same time as we have the highest inflation in 30 years, then surely we can say that experiment is filed. Well, this is why the cultural response is so important. And this is this is really the, the face of the culture war. So you have people who are living in a reality where, you know, what is on offer is the most interesting society we've ever lived in. It's yeah. the most diverse. It's the most inclusive. And I'm not saying we've completed that project, not by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly you can you can see the far horizon from here and that we're better for it. Feminism made communities better, safer, um, more specialist, more interesting, like more representative. It made parenthood more inclusive. Feminism mm. gave men the opportunity to participate in the miracle which is raising children, which is extraordinary, you know, and so different to when I was a kid when my dad was sort of terrified of spending time with me lest he cross some kind of social rule. And obviously as the years went on, I mean, my dad became like, you know, my beloved closest friend. But society creates these rules of engagement that are based on the narratives that we understand and the way we try to make sense of social behaviour and the rest of it. And while we're creating these like engaged, diverse, you know, products of, de- of a thriving democracy and talking about different experiences and giving people insights into the lives of others and encouraging empathy as the great audience experience, that is the celebration of democracy democracy and mm. the big vision and democratic values. And it's awesome that the new government is pumping money into the arts. It's exactly what it should be doing to reflect who we really are. But also into manufacturing and, and education. And all of those things, yeah. which are the, those are the opportunities required to have that social engagement, mm. our jobs, our economic security, you know, so you're not living in terror in your lounge room um, consuming television or YouTube because it's cheap, mm. you know, like it's, it's that opportunity cr- to create the points of engagement. Like if you're that's, confident you have a job tomorrow, you're going to wage is going to meet the cost of living. You're you're actually able to actively participate without a sense of dread and fear, right? Exactly. 
But the alternative, which is the anti-democratic movement, like their monocultural project is extremely strong and we can't underestimate, like it is it is a minority, but it has enough power and it has enough heft and it owns enough stuff to interrupt the machinations of democracy, particularly in the United States of America. And the, the fact that they are so culturally concentrated, they have their own circuit of cultural participation, of mm. music, of actors who they lionise. They make their own films, some extremely weird right-wing films. There is a film about Rudy Giuliani starting, starring James Woods, which is literally the weirdest thing I have ever seen. And some guy about some pillows, the pillow guy. The pillow guy. Like yeah. the, there's a man who sells pillows under the brand My Pillow is like creates these sort of entertainment events, like these festivals of right-wing nuttery where he repeats and they are costumes and chants and dancing people and right-wing and, and like, pillow people. And yeah, there are artists who are bought visual artists, painters who are bought exclusively by Trump supporters and they invest in it because they understand the power of cultural objects to educate people in beliefs and values and to convince them that, that a reality exists which is not the one we share. And it's why these it's why the culture war is actually important and why we can't just write it off as oh, crazy people in America talking about crazy mm. things, you know, like their crazy anti-15-minute cities campaign. It's where you double down and go, actually, 15-minute cities are great and critical race theory is also great and fringe festivals are great and reviewing and critical culture is great and a broader conversation about participation and representation is great. All of those things, that's actually how we make a difference to stopping a movement which is energetically authoritarian. It really is energetically authoritarian. And, you know, I think Peter Dutton, who is the leader of the of the leftovers, is fundamentally in that space, right? And if if you if you happen to ever pick up uh, a copy of the boss's pamphlet, uh, the, this is what Ben calls the Australian Financial Review. Is the boss's pamphlet? You'll um, you'll find that there's lots of really positive things in there about Peter Dutton. Uh, and if you ever look at Peter Dutton's uh, record in Parliament, you'll notice that it bears no relation to anything positive at all. Peter Dutton. He walked out on the apology. Well, not only did he walk out on the apology, he then apologised for it for walking out 15 years later and then didn't attend the breakfast with the Stolen Generation uh, members who had come to Parliament House. So he kind of needs to apologise for that now. I mean, the man... Apologising for his non-apology oh. at the time of his apology for not apologising for the apology. I think that's brilliant. That's the kind of political leadership this country needs. That's it. I'm voting Liberal at the next election. You've won me, Pete. Well, the, Convincing. It's become Absolutely the, thundering argument, mate. It's become the no-alition. They're, they're, they're against the cultural policy. They're against the housing policy. They're against the climate policy. They're against the jobs policy. They're against the wages policy. You know, they're just – they're against everything – uh, and fundamentally, that's how they're going to position. And it is a little terrifying having, and I'm sure many people listening uh, and many people here tonight, uh, lived through the Abbott era where Abbott basically spent his whole time saying no and then got elected anyway. Now, we need to be really careful about that. Times have changed and the Liberal Party is a different beast than it was under Abbott and the Labor Party is a different beast than it was then too. But this no positioning 
is reflective of that culture that no, we're not going to be cosmopolitan. No, we're not going to recognize uh, First Nations people. No, we're not going to have social housing near my near my investment property. No, you know, I'm not going to pay people a living wage. Uh, no, you're not going to take away my tax breaks on superannuation over five million dollars in order to raise the age pension. That's a long one, but you know, you get my point, right? These are the, the ideas of people who have no ideas and just don't want things to be different. But if you watch Sky News, you would Sky After Dark, you would be convinced that there's a very strong cultural vision operating. And this is the this is the interesting cultural fallacy that despite the fact that you have the the political representatives of that movement positioning as no, 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 implicitly that audience, that base, that market that we're subscribing because there are no arts reviews, woohoo, um, that that they exist with shared assumptions about what society looks like. And that's what's really scary. And it's particularly around things like the implicit just dripping gross racism Mm. that underpins the opposition to the voice that comes from that quarter because we know it's racism. You know it is, I know it is. They are opposed to constitutional recognitions for First Nations people because fundamentally that would be an acknowledgement that racism is bad and we shouldn't have it and and we should make ameliorations and accommodations to account for the, the shame that dogs this country, which is the racist genocide that underpins so many of our institutions. Now, we believe that we as a community can move beyond that and we should mm. and it's the right thing to do. And you can simultaneously, like, be a good person, take responsibility for things that maybe you personally didn't do but certainly you profited from and that the future is just as bright for you if you do that. Yeah. Like, that there's, a, there's an opportunity for Australia to be an awesome experience for everyone. But it's the the resistance is held into that cultural narrative of supremacy of Jordan Peterson men are this women are this non-binary people I can't even talk to them you know like this you know the the mythology of the white bushy man out bushing things whatever they did shooting things I don't know and and that and that that is more powerful and more important to them than this notion of a society that's engaged and diverse and different and participatory and ultimately you know many of them will themselves suffer as a result of saying no they'll miss out on those opportunities that actually will give them a much better understanding of the world in which they live and actually enjoy I just think that Peter Dutton's apology for his non-apology, apology, apology, non-apology around the voice will be one of the great theatrical performances of our time and I hope I live long enough to see it. Peter Dutton for Oscars 2024. Um, Look, we want to move on to some good news because we are running out of time. Believe it or not, this conversation does have to come to an end eventually but there's some really excellent news. It sounds a bit strange but we have the world now has almost twice as much cobalt as it had before. And this is really good news. So we didn't know how much cobalt was there, which was a problem, because while everybody, like, you know, dreadful, scary, you know, left-wing environmentalists like Ben and myself are hiding under the beds going, renewables, renewables are coming. They're going to come and take your car, renewables. Um, The problem has been, even though there are rather a lot of us, this is a cohort of people under the beds growing with this demand, we weren't entirely sure as a civilization we had enough cobalt to actually make it happen. There was rather a lot of hoping maybe there'd be a big cobalt meteor that we could mine or something. And the good news is they found heaps of cobalt in Canada. That's right. So the the average 
price per ton of cobalt has dropped by two thirds, which means and and now it, we can effectively electrify the world with the amount of cobalt that we have discovered. So as opposed to hoping to find enough cobalt to electrify the world, we now have enough. But not only cobalt. Lithium, which is an element people are probably a little more familiar with. Yeah, lithium, very important in the production of batteries. One would even use the word crucial. Crucial. We have 40% more than we realised and it's all in India, which will lead to incredible economic opportunities for India in terms of the renewable space because if you haven't seen some of the documentaries about the effects of climate change and failing infrastructure in India, you should, but that's only if you do not like to sleep. So that's great news. And let's put this into the context of a story that I really liked. Ben and I sometimes have competitive, I've got a better news story than you. So something people don't know is that batteries in electric vehicles run out, that they do have to be retired at some point because they wear down and they can't get you as far as everywhere. No Leaving us lasts because through. like because there's no such thing as an inherently good news story. There's always going to be a kick in the tail. Leaving us with a used up battery problem. Well, the good news is a company in California have worked out what to do with the batteries of EVs and uh, retired batteries from Toyotas and Hondas. They've repurposed as surplus battery storage uh, for solar and wind. So already they're putting the recycled parts to good use and banking up energy that can be used uh, in that direction. Undeniably good news. I told you that was a good news story. I know. It looks ben like thought everybody it was enjoyed boring. it. I'm just like, I think it's really fascinating. I think, I think it's recycling batteries. I think we should be doing it all the time. It's good. Thank you. <laughs> of course, those are the main stories for the week on Wednesday this week. Thank you for joining us. It is rather like having everybody in our shed in this lovely yurt-like uh, ambience. And I hope you've enjoyed the discussion as opposed to just going, it is not 40 degrees in here. How exciting. <laughs> And if you did come in just to avoid the heat, we welcome you as well. Yes, tell uh, your friends. Yeah. Look, the week on Wednesday is a free podcast. It's free to download, free to listen, free to share. In fact, we encourage you to share it with people, co-workers, friends, family. If you do have someone who's fallen down the rabbit hole, we know, for example, that somebody plays the week on Wednesday at high volumes over their fence because their neighbour has gone into the QAnon rabbit hole. But it does cost we, money to make. It does cost money to make. We don't make money off it, but we do have some supporters who do make contributions, sometimes once off, sometimes a buck a week. Uh, they, we call them our buck a week supporters. See how creative we are? Uh, we have our Extend the Reach supporters who chip in 10 bucks a month and our Cadre supporters who chip in 20 bucks a month. Some now, of them, I think I'm going here. to bring all of my theatrical training to the fore and attempt to do this as quickly as possible. You ready? Our cadre are. Steph, Karina Bali, Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Burris, Christina Sikluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aiken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Evergreen Vise, Giada Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James Bromwin, Pudge Drunk Veteran, Jenny Forster, Seven Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Tia Sandal Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Collie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy Three McCabe, Narissa Simon, at Cadigal, Lauren Ashen Banjo, Matthew Hadley, Narunga Man, Shane Horsfall, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, and Anthony Bailden. And our Extend the Reach supporters are Helen, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron the Trout Dragon, Daniel Crazy, Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Uren, Roskana 888, Kathy Burgess, Kristen Black, Melanie Dinning, Jody A, not on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Shane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, K Not, Love Your Work, Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Reverse, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannah, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Ox, 
Huxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honig, Galvest, Greg Martin, trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah Elian, and Andrew Ivis Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twiddle, Bunkum Basher, Katie War, The Real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart, Renee McGee, Stuart Martin, Marky Mart, at Vinimbit, Adrian Valente, Maritza, at Carradale 68, Freck Nahus, Erica Pizzuti, Donald Vaughan, Claire, Jay Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kelly, Arthur, and Pauline Bates. <laughs> Debt of $25,000. And you missed Claire in the cadre, but that's okay. Well done. <laughs> but thank you to all of our supporters. I'm getting death looks. You can't see this at home, but I'm in real trouble here. I'll be lucky to get out of this year to live. I'm going to get some Ghost of Tsushima assassinations. Can happening. I just say, as Ghost of Tsushima players, this is the, re the realisation of a dream. They are playing us off. That is our music. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch us on Sunday for the weekend wrap, which I will do from the shed at home. We will be back here with the week on Wednesday live at Adelaide Fringe next week and for the next three weeks. Until then, love you, Vanny. Love you too. Love you all. Love you all. Bye. Bye. Bye.